Today's scripture reading is 1 Samuel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan was bound to David in close friendship and loved him as much as he loved himself. Saul kept David with him from that day on and did not let him return to his father's house. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. David marched out with the army and was successful in everything Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the fighting men, which pleased all the people and Saul's servants as well. As the troops were coming back when David was returning from killing the Philistines, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three stringed instruments. As they danced, the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Elder Stan. In all my years of ministry, I have heard hundreds of prayer requests. I've heard people confess many different struggles, many different sins. People have asked me to pray for their struggle against pride, materialism, lust. People have asked me to pray for their laziness, their outbursts of anger, their complacency. But only once has anyone ever shared with me, Jeff, I struggle with envy. Can you please pray for me? Only once in 25 years of ministry. Why is that? Is it because we don't struggle with envy? I don't think so. Just because envy is not expressed doesn't mean it doesn't exist. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we'll be able to see it pop up here and there. For example, envy tends to happen when good things happen to those around us. It stirs up when a colleague receives a promotion. While that promotion is well-deserved and we're happy for them, we cannot help but think, but what about me? It stirs up when a friend announces an engagement or perhaps a pregnancy. You love your friend, you're happy for your friend, but your joy isn't as joyous as it should be. It stirs up when we see pictures of lavish vacations, happening family outings. 
It stirs up at banquets and award ceremonies where everyone around us seems to be recognized and affirmed. Even for me this morning, I received an email about an Asian American Christian conference that's going to be hosted in a few months, and they released the speaker list, and I read over that speaker list and recognized many of my friends. But then I, the thought occurred to me, but what about me? At the same time, envy also pops up when bad things happen to those around us. When a coworker is demoted or fired, when someone gets caught up in a scandal, to our shock and disbelief, we feel a little bit happy at the news. Perhaps this is the reason why Gossip tabloids, celebrity gossip, is so popular. We love to read about when people in high places fall. It gives us a weird pang of joy. Perhaps the reason why we're so reluctant to confess envy is because it's pretty evil. What's wrong with me, we think to ourselves. Why can't I be happy for so-and-so? Why does this bad news make me feel good? When we see envy in our hearts, we're shocked by its ugliness, and so we don't want anybody to know the truth. The reason why envy is so evil is because it's the very opposite of love. Scott Sauls writes this, quote, Envy is the opposite of love because it does not rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn. Instead, in its sick and sinister way, it rejoices when others mourn and mourns when others rejoice. Envy is the theme of our passage here in 1 Samuel 19. David's defeat of Goliath in chapter 18 made him a national hero overnight. After 40 days of living in terror, Israel is now liberated by the Philistine from the Philistine threat, all because of David. And so one thing that you'll notice if you read the entire chapter is that virtually every single character that appears in chapter 19 loves David. Saul's son, Jonathan, loves David, verse 1. Saul's daughter, Michal, loves David, verse 20. Saul's servants love David, verse 22. In fact, verse 16 says that Israel and Judah love David. What makes this significant is that David is from the tribe of Judah, so you'd expect his tribe to love him, but it's not just his tribe that loves him, it's all of Israel too. And so the country's love for David is captured in the victory song the women sing as the soldiers make their way back home from the front lines, dancing with tambourines, singing their hearts out. They exclaim in verse 7, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And note, 
this isn't literally true. It just means a lot. Unfortunately, the love and rise of David's popularity strikes an evil note in Saul's heart. As much as we trace David's popularity in chapter 19, so too you can trace Saul's envy. Saul resents David. He can't stand David. In response to the women's singing, verse 8 through 9 declares, Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. That phrase translated, watched jealously, literally means his eye was turned on David from that day forward. Something changed in Saul's heart. His eyes were poisoned, distorted, so that from that day forward, Saul looked with suspicion upon David. No longer was David a friend, but now a foe. No longer a hero, but now a threat. Such is the impact of envy in our hearts. This is what makes envy so sinister. It destroys and causes havoc with our relationships. It distorts your perception so that a sibling becomes a rival, a colleague becomes competition. Envy changes the way you see people. You begin to resent them. You begin to devalue them, even demonize them. This makes sense since their advancement, their promotion, their advantage is the source of your internal pain. And last time I checked, we don't like pain. Ultimately, Saul's envy leads to murderous behavior. In chapter 18, Saul makes three attempts at David's life. In verses 10 through 11, he attempts to kill David with a spear. He tries to pin David against the wall. Now, I don't know why David would continue to hang out with Saul after that. Perhaps Saul said, you know what? I'm just keeping you on your toes. Since you're fighting for me as part of my army, you need to always be on guard. I don't know. But he tries to kill David and he fails. And then in verse 17 through 19, Saul becomes a little more deceptive. He tries to indirectly kill David. This time, he uses his daughter, Merab. He tells David, I will let you marry my oldest daughter, Merab, but on the condition that you continue to fight for my army. Now, you might remember back in chapter 17, one of the rewards that the king was going to give to any Israelite soldier who was able to kill Goliath is what? As a reward for killing Goliath, I'll let you marry into the royal family. I'll marry off one of my daughters. But apparently, Saul reneges on his offer and offers another condition. 
David, I know you killed Goliath, but before I let you marry into the family, you must continue to serve as a warrior. Now, is Saul just an overprotective father and wants to make sure that David deserves and is competent enough to marry into the family? No. He's not being a good father here. Verse 17 tells us that this was all a ploy. Saul's hope was that by fighting for him, David would eventually be killed in battle. And so Saul's ultimate plan was not to host a wedding. His ultimate plan was to host a funeral. Unfortunately for Saul, his plan fails. David does not die. And at the last minute, true to form, Saul pulls back his offer and marries Merab off to another man. And then in verses 20 through 28, Saul comes up with this third plot to to kill David. And it's very similar to the second attempt. Now he offers his youngest daughter, Michal, to David. Only this time, he doesn't ask David, I want you to just fight for me on the front lines. I want you to come home with a hundred Philistines killed. If you can kill a hundred Philistines, then you're worthy to be married into my family. But again, his plot fails. David not only successfully kills 100 Philistines, but 200. And at this point, Saul's reputation is on the line. He has no, uh, he has no other option. He marries Michal off to David. What you see through these episodes is how envy dehumanizes those around us. Saul sees David not as someone created in the image of God, but as a threat to be squashed. And not only does he dehumanize David, he also dehumanizes his own daughters. They become chess pieces, pawns, to be leveraged for his own advantage. Such is the impact of envy, it destroys our relationships. As much as envy destroys relationships, though, the deadliest impact is that at the end of the day, envy ultimately destroys you. This chapter gives us a window into Saul's psychological demise. Verse 8 tells us that Saul became furious and resentful. Verse 9, his eye turns and becomes suspicious. Verse 12, Saul's resentment now turns to fear. Verse 15, this fear now turns to dread. And then in verse 29, Saul becomes even, quote, more afraid of David. We see him circling the drain psychologically, becoming more and more isolated. Many philosophers over the centuries have described envy as a type of sadness. It's a sad sin. 
You could have received a, we, we, we see this envy work itself out in our children. You could give your daughter five Skittles and she's jumping for joy. And then you give her brother six Skittles. And what happens to that joy? It turns to anger. And yet we don't grow out of envy, do we? You could receive a 10% raise from your company. Unexpected, out of the blue, and you're, you're jumping up and down, and then you find out your coworker got a 12% raise. What happens? That joy is now met with suspicion. Students, you could have gotten a 1450 on the SAT. It was your goal, but then your best friend reports and tells you that she got a 1500. How would that make you feel? It's not a surprise that those who suffer from envy are generally unhappy people, generally jaded and depressed. Their envy blinds them from seeing the wonderful blessings they actually possess. If it weren't for Saul's pride and envy, Saul would have realized that David is the greatest gift God could have given him. After all, if it weren't for David, Goliath would have won and every man, woman, and child would have become a Philistine slave. If it weren't for David, Saul himself would likely have been executed by the Philistines as the rival king. But instead of celebrating and embracing David, he despises him and resents him, all because of envy. What makes envy especially sad is that there's never a point in which envy feels good. If you think about it, with other sins, there are moments of brief gratification. When you lose your temper and you just burst out in anger, there's a brief moment of power. It's cathartic to let that anger out. With lust, there's a a brief moment of pleasure followed by a cascade of guilt and shame. With materialism, there's a brief moment of joy followed by long-lasting debt. But with envy, it feels bad all the way down. This is why the color that envy is associated with is what? Green. He or she is green with envy, and when someone looks green, they look sick. They look like they're about to throw up, about to vomit. That's the impact of envy in our souls. It makes us sick. So envy destroys relationships, envy destroys you, and we have countless biblical examples of that. Cain and Abel, Sarah and Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Leah and Rachel, Joseph and his brothers, the Pharisees and Jesus. 
At the same time, not everyone in our story is sick with envy. On the opposite spectrum of Saul is his son, Jonathan. Chapter 18 begins by telling us that Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself. It tells us that Jonathan made a covenant with David, a covenant of loyalty, friendship, brotherhood. In fact, verse 4 tells us that Jonathan removed his robe, gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. What is Jonathan doing here? This is more than just a friend letting his friend borrow his clothes at a sleepover. No, what you have here in verse 4 is Jonathan abdicating his throne. You see, your clothes, your military armor was an expression of your royal status. And by handing these elements over to David, Jonathan privately, in a private ceremony, is telling David, you are the next king. What's interesting is that there's an ancient Akkadian document dated around the same time that records a divorce settlement between an Ugarit king and his queen. And in this document, it states that upon the divorce, the king's son has the freedom to follow his mom. But if he follows his mom, he abdicates his right to the throne, and if he chooses to follow his mom, he is going to convey that decision by leaving his clothes on the throne. What makes Jonathan's love all the more extraordinary is that if anyone had cause for any envy, if anyone had cause to see David as a threat, it was him. He's the crown prince. The throne belongs to him. And yet instead of eliminating David, he embraces him. And the fact that Jonathan can love and embrace David tells us that envy doesn't have to reign in our hearts. Envy doesn't have to infect all of us. It may have infected Saul, but it definitely didn't affect Jonathan. And when you think about it, both Saul and Jonathan are in very similar situations. Both are close to the throne. And so what enables Jonathan to love David while Saul envies him? What's the difference? I believe it's because Jonathan knew that David was blessed by God. Jonathan knew that the Lord was behind David's success. The Lord was behind David's victory over Goliath. And this leads me to the first of two antidotes in our fight against envy. The first antidote is this. The reason why Jonathan was able to embrace and love David is because Jonathan understood that the main character of his life story is not himself. 
Jonathan believed that the main character of his life is not him. Rather, he's a supporting character where God is the main character. God is the protagonist. God is the hero. God is supposed to be the king of his life. As a supporting cast, Jonathan believed that his life's purpose is to promote God's glory, God's name, God's kingdom. And so Jonathan saw himself as Batman's Robin, Frodo's Sam, Shrek's donkey. His life purpose was not to make himself great, but make God look Great, And this is why he can so easily abdicate the throne to David. It would lead to God's glory. Unfortunately, Saul saw things the other way. The goal of his life was to broadcast an autobiography. My life is about me. He was the main character of his own story. Everyone else in his life is a supporting cast. God supports him. Even his children are the supporting cast. He must be the hero. He must be the protagonist. He must be literally and figuratively king. What Saul ultimately failed to realize was that his biggest problem in, not, in life was not David, neither was it the praise of the women or their song or the fact that everyone loved David. Rather, Saul's ultimate problem was his broken relationship with God. His relationship with God was broken. And as a result of that broken relationship, he thought that power and popularity could take God's place, could satisfy his soul. He thought the universal approval and esteem would make his life complete, but those are all lies, those are all false gospels. No amount of status, glory, fame, and human approval can satisfy our souls. And boy, do we need to hear that, especially those of us who live and work in Orange County. Saul serves as a reminder and a warning to all of us that we cannot look horizontally for what will satisfy us vertically. Let me repeat that again. Saul serves as a reminder and a warning that we cannot look horizontally for that which alone can satisfy us vertically. If you are not satisfied with what you have, you will not be satisfied with what you want. If you're not satisfied with what you have right now in this world, You will not be satisfied with what you want in this world. Even if God were to give you all of your dreams without a relationship with God, a thriving, healthy relationship of God, guess what? You'll still be unsatisfied. Don't give in to the lie that all you need is just a little bit 
more. By living for himself, Saul lost himself. By thinking he was the hero, he became the enemy. Only when God takes his rightful place in our hearts does our story begin to make sense, does the tension begin to ease, and joy and gratitude begin to bubble up. But it's hard for us to play the supporting cast, isn't it? It's hard for us to not be the main character. I tried to think of an equivalent of the song that the women sang for Saul and apply it to my own life. What would be the equivalent of Saul killed thousands, David killed ten thousands? And I realized, what if people at church started saying, Pastor Jeff's sermons are good, but Lewis's sermons, they're amazing. <laughs> How would I feel? I think that's the equivalent, right? Honestly, I think it would bother me. I think it would up my game, right? I start preparing more, right? Maybe it's a good thing, right? And I know some of you actually think this. But why would I feel that way? Is this church about me? No, this is God's church. As long as he receives the glory, as long as you guys are being edified, it should not bother me at all if someone's preaching is better than my own. If anything, I should be thanking God, thanking Lewis for his gifts. And yet that is the sin that resides in me. I need to be the hero. I need to be the main character, whether of my own life or even of my church. Such is the impact of envy. Thankfully, there's a second antidote to envy. It's the antidote of love. Remember, as much as chapter 18 is about Saul's envy, it's also about Jonathan's love. Jonathan bound himself to David, loved him as much as he loved himself. Jonathan makes a covenant with David, pledges eternal loyalty to him. He abdicates to David and removes what was his own and gives it to David. When you think about the way Jonathan loves David, does it not remind you of another person's love? Does it not remind you of how Jesus loves us? The only difference is that we are not like David. We are much more like Saul. We are the ones struggling, crippled by envy. We are the ones struggling with our egos and self-centeredness. We are the ones who resent God for not propping us up and doing what we want and yet, despite our prideful vanity, our never-ending pursuit of self-glory, Jesus bound himself to us. He cleaved himself to us. He loved us as himself. And he made a covenant, a pact with us. 
I will never let my love go, even if I were to die. Who is the one who did not consider himself equality with God, but emptied himself of his divine prerogatives and became a man and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, who is the one who then took his status as a royal heir and imputed it, credited it to us so that we who were orphans and enemies of God might become sons and daughters of the Most High King, co-heirs with Jesus in the heavenly places above. Does not Jonathan's love foreshadow the love that we get to experience in Christ? And I guarantee when you are able to revel and relish and savor your love, the love that God has for you, when you're able to relish and savor your status as sons and daughters of God, you will not want to be a king of this world. What you have in Christ far supersedes any promotion, any fame, approval, acclaim you can gather for yourself, secure for yourself in this life. We are rich beyond measure. Love, gospel love, is the antidote to envy. When the roots of your soul are drinking deeply from the well of gospel grace, you'll be too busy adoring God, praising God, worshiping God, thanking Him to be worried about the trifle earthly blessings of this world. The gospel is like Teflon for the soul. Envy cannot stick when your heart is coated with the gospel. Dear friends, may we preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again. May we gospel waltz daily and remind ourselves that we belong to God, that we are loved, and we are worthy. When your heart is overflowing with grace, then you can rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. You can genuinely love and celebrate your relationships because your heart is overflowing with his love. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that when we forget you, when we don't take advantage of what we have in you, when we lose sight of your love, when we don't savor your grace, our hearts drift from the only one who satisfies and starts to lust after the unsatisfying 
treasures of this world. Help us, O Lord, to be so rooted in you that the world loses its sparkle, that the world loses its glamour. And instead, O Lord, may we find our lives hidden in Christ and may that lead to a fountain of gratitude that replaces grumbling, contentment that replaces resentment. May we be people known for being those who are first to rejoice when others rejoice and first to mourn when others mourn. May, we, may our lives be marked by selfless love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.